Please open a Bible to Exodus chapter 20. If you're working with the church Bible, that's on page 72. Uh, We're continuing this series looking at the Ten Commandments. And the first several commandments are all focused on taking God seriously in a variety of ways. So the first commandment we looked at last week said no rivals. The commandment we're looking at this week says no idols. Uh, Last week is about holding fast to the true God. This week is about what appropriate worship for the true God looks like. Each week I'm going to read the whole Ten Commandments section, verses uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, but we're going to be focusing in on verses 4 through 6. Hear now the reading of God's word. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's word. Uh, This morning I want to make three points, uh, three arguments. First, our images diminish God. Second, he gave us, God gave us his image. And third, we love God by honoring his image. First, our images diminish God. Our images diminish God. Uh, This command would forbid Israel from making a statue of Marduk or Baal or Ra or any other foreign god. But that really, that idea is already covered by the first commandment, have no other gods before me. This command goes further. The focus is on not worshiping the true God by means of idols. Don't worship the true God in a false way. Uh, Rather, worship him according to his word. And in particular, it forbids us from making representations of God as part of our worship. God forbids us from making images of him for worship because our images diminish God. 
Images are reductive. They focus on one aspect of a thing and exclude others. Images, uh, kids, if you don't know what diminish means, it shrinks God down to a size that can fit in our pocket. In the Bible, of course, God gives us all sorts of metaphorical images of himself. He's like a rock. He's like an eagle. He's like a shield. He's like a mother. He's like a father. He's like a lion. You know, you can go on down the list. All sorts of metaphorical images. But each of these images only captures an aspect or a part of God's character. If you take any one of those images and then, or, or, or metaphors and then turn it into an image and you say, as Aaron is going to say in a few chapters, here is your God who brought you out of Egypt. You've made an idol. And those images diminish God. Idolatry replaces a real relationship with the living God with our image of God, with our picture in our heads. The second commandment specifically tells us not to make images of God based on anything in heaven above or on the earth or in the seas. In short, it's saying anywhere in creation, don't use that to make your images of God because it reduces God down to the level of just one more thing in the universe. Sometimes skeptics say things like, if God exists, where is he? Uh, Psalm 115, that's how Israel's mocked. Where is your God? Others think that if God exists, that claim should be scientifically verifiable, or at least in principle falsifiable. But the problem with these objections is it imagines God being a bit like a hidden room in a house. You can go into a house, uh, you, you, know, you can find him, you hunt around, you knock on floorboards, you can measure walls seeing, and rooms, seeing if maybe there's a, a secret space, look for trap doors, and you say, well, I don't see this hidden room anywhere, it doesn't exist. But God is telling us here, he's not just one more thing in the universe, he's not just one more room in a house, rather he's the architect of all things. And so every square inch of the universe comes from him and testifies to him. Uh, the Bible scholar Douglas Stewart explains the attraction of ancient idolatry in a number of ways. You know, why would you make a graven image? Well, for one, it guaranteed access to your God. Ancients were sophisticated. They knew that the statue that they prayed to wasn't the God itself, but rather it functioned a bit like FaceTime. So when a carved image was set up, the priest would perform a variety of ceremonies that opened the mouth of the idol and then it was thought part of the spirit of that God entered the idol. And so if you spoke to the idol, the God, wherever he or she was, would hear those prayers. So an idol guarantees access. And what's more, it's focused on my needs. If I feed your idol, you're obligated to do what I want. It was easy and convenient. You had your local idol that you could just stop by whenever you wanted uh, near your house, it wasn't inconvenient. It didn't take up a day going to worship or anything like that. It was normal. Everybody did it. And it was appealing to the senses. It was sensual and licentious. Here is a dazzling image that you could worship with carousing and debauchery. There's no call to personal holiness. There's no claim that you need to live in an ethical manner. Even if Israel rejected those more unsavory aspects of idolatry, you can see the allure. 
Here's a firm, solid representation of God that guarantees easy access. Perhaps of all the commandments, this is the one where we think this is kind of back then and doesn't come forward to today. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't have any carved images hidden in my closet. There's no totem pole or maypole in our backyard. Uh, you know, are we off the hook? What of it? Well, the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 109, insightfully says that the second commandment forbids making any representation of God either inwardly in our minds or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. What's the catechism saying there? It's saying, look, we may not make literal carved images out of stone, but we have the same impulse in our hearts to make images of God and then replace a relationship with the real and living God with the pictures of God that we have in our mind, these mental images. And it's problematic. After his wife died, C.S. Lewis wrote a short book called A Grief Observed, reflecting on losing his wife. And one of the things he reflects on is that he never had a good picture or photograph of his wife. Uh, there was a couple where it was just kind of a, a bit of her, but didn't have a good picture of her. And at first, that was a source of grief that he was thought, if only I'd had a really good picture of her, a portrait of her, that would help me to cherish her. And yet he set, realized, what I want is my wife, not something that is merely like her. He recognizes there's a spiritual lesson here as well. A really good photograph might become in the end a snare, a horror, and an obstacle. Images, I must suppose, have their use or they would not have been so popular. It makes little difference whether they are pictures and statues outside the mind or imaginative constructions within it. To me, however, their danger is more obvious. Images of the holy easily become holy images. My idea of God, however, is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? What's Lewis saying? He's saying he realizes there's a danger when we set up mental images of God in place of the living God. He says those images need to be shattered by an encounter uh, with, with the presence of the true and living God. Our pictures of God, these mental images, must be open to critique. We must subordinate them, we must submit them to the actual living God as he reveals himself in his word. So Heidelberg Catechism, question 98, recognizes that the second commandment is not only forbidding idolatry, but it is a call to be instructed by the preaching of God's word rather than idols which cannot speak. It's saying, how do we think about God as he's revealed to us through his preached word rather than by looking at a statue? And in fact, a, a bit later, when we get to Exodus 34, Moses comes down the mountain with the two tablets. It says that these tablets are carved or graven, the same word that's used here. But they're not carved to represent the likeness of any living creature. They're carved with God's own word that reveals what God is like. Let's get specific for a moment. Here are five po popular false images that diminish God. Uh, I identify each one with a little catchphrase. First, God is an impersonal force. If he exists, he's sort of like the law of gravity, out there, but totally removed 
from my daily life. It is true, Paul says, that in God we live and move and have our being, but if this is your picture of God, it diminishes his personhood. God is living and active. He speaks. He is intimately involved in each moment of our lives. A second picture we have, God just wants me to be happy. God's just smiling with approval on everything I do. This image is the foundation of popular ethics. As Sheryl Crow sings, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. God is love, so God wants me to love, and love is love, so God couldn't possibly want to restrict my love life in any way. I kid you not, this is a true story, but it's from my dad, so it's not someone in our church, but people in church, uh, two couples, and the husband became attracted to the wife of a different couple, and they were talking about this, and they were sitting on a park bench, and they saw a dove fly by, and they said, here's a sign of God's peace. We should have this affair with each other. They have a reduced picture of God that God just wants me to be happy, and then they grasp at straws for justification for what they want to do. It diminishes God. Of course, God is love, but God is also holy. God is also just. He calls us to behave in a way that honors him. A third image, God is out to get me. I guess this is the flip side of the last one. He's the cosmic police officer just waiting for me to step out of line so that he can zap me. Every bad thing that happens is God's punishment. This is another image, popular image of God. And of course, again, God is just. And yet this image of him reduces him down. It diminishes him. It ignores his gracious love for all creatures that he makes it to reign on the wicked and just alike. Related is a fourth picture. God could never forgive me. If he knew about this thing in my past, if he knew what I had done, he would never love me. He would never forgive me. Again, it picks up the reality that God is just and yet diminishes his power and limits his grace. Finally, a fifth image. God is all about glory and power. Martin Luther contrasts what he calls a theology of glory with a theology of the cross. And of course, he's speaking in, in the day, uh, the time of the Reformation, when Rome and many of the Roman Catholic churches were filled with opulent artwork, statues, gold, riches. And he's saying, you're all about glory, earthly glory, and you've missed the cross, the call to take up your cross and follow me. Yes, God does exalt Christ, but it's only after Christ humbles himself and dies for his people, the path to eventual glory leads through suffering. And Luther's saying, we have a wrong picture of God and we miss that. We focus on power. Uh, we try to, got a fruit fly up here, sorry about that. Uh, we try to uh, uh, seek power for ourselves because we say that's what God's about, that's what I'm on about. Our images diminish God. And yet, second, God gives us his image. God gives us his image. A lifeless statue can't image the living God. A mute picture can't represent the God who speaks. A still idol can't picture the God who comes to his people and rescues them by his mighty hand. Only a living, seeing, hearing, walking, talking, active image 
could be adequate for the true and living God. And so God gave us his image. In the ancient world, temple builders would construct a temple and they'd fill it with all kinds of furniture and furnishings on the walls. And then they would dedicate the temple, often across a week ceremony filled with sacrifices and celebrations. And at the culmination of that week ceremony, dedicating the temple, the, an image, a carved image of the god would be placed in the inner sanctuary as a sign that the god was present in that temple and claimed ownership over the land round about. Well, what do we see in Genesis 1? God, the cosmic craftsman, builds the heavens and the earth and the sea. He fills them with plants, stellar objects, birds and fish and land animals. And this three-story universe is a cosmic temple with every creature designed to play a part in the cosmic liturgy, reflecting aspects of God's own glory. That's what we sang in that first hymn, Lord, all nature sings your glory. And then what happens in Genesis 1 at the culmination of the creation week, when everything's in its right place, God says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And then he works the ground like a potter to make this mud man, and he breathes the breath of life into him. Like ancient idols in ancient temples, humans are made to mediate God's presence and his lordship. And as we fill and subdue the earth, we symbolize God and his claim over creation. God gave us his image. And so when we worship and bow down to false images, we don't just diminish God by exchanging his glory for created things, but we give up our own glory, for we are God's image. And so the Bible regularly links idolatry with injustice. If you're willing to diminish God down to a simple picture that you can hold in your mind, we have no problem doing the same thing to other people, reducing them to means to our ends. And the images of God we have in our head shape how we interact, how we live. If our mental picture of God is stern and austere, we act the same way towards our family. If our mental picture of God is as someone who can never forgive us, we'll be filled with self-loathing. If our mental picture of God centers on power, we will seek power over others. This helps us to understand what it means to say that God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. He's saying idolaters, those who worship images rather than the true God, hate him. It's strong language. But imagine a man who ignores his wife, and when he's confronted, he says, look, I've got this picture of my wife in my wallet, and I take it out all the time and look at it and talk to it. What's the big deal? The wife would be right to say he must hate me. He's ignoring me in favor of a picture. And God says the same thing. If we ignore the true and living God and put our picture of him in place of him, it shows hatred for him. Well, in ancient Israel, the third and fourth generation would be the extent of the living family. And often that extended family would live together in close proximity, uh, oftentimes in the same house or in the same larger sort of village complex. They would work the same land, uh, work together in the same industry. God is not saying here he's going to arbitrarily punish innocent grandchildren and great-grandchildren for their grandparents' sin, but rather 
he's saying the point is that parents can't practice idolatry without involving the whole household in the consequences. Or to put it another way around, it's no excuse for children and grandchildren to say, I'm just doing what my parents did. They taught me to act this way. I learned it from them. You can't hold me accountable. We're taught here that idolatry and sin more generally has consequences beyond ourselves. It has consequences for our larger community. It's important to remember in our individualistic age that our sin affects our family, it affects our friends, it affects our church, it affects our community. Idolatry uh, is a diminished picture of God, and when those pictures get passed on, it has implications for coming generations. Of course, uh, God's grace means this isn't necessarily the case. Children of scoundrels can be transformed by God's grace, and their character is totally different than their parents. That happens all the time. But this is the story of the human race. The first humans were created in God's image, but they adopted the snake's false picture of God as stringent, trying to keep something good from them. And so they disobeyed God and took the good thing for themselves. And then we see this same pattern repeated in the next generation. Cain doesn't want to worship God in the way God tells him to, and so he gets angry, and that anger leads to killing his brother. And from there, the cycles continue until at the time of the flood, the whole earth is filled with violence. The effects of idolatry in the garden are passed on from generation to generation, and you and I are affected by the results that we have learned idols from our parents and grandparents, and we think of God wrongly, and we need God to shatter those false pictures. Every human is still made in God's image, but in a sense, you can imagine in this uh, situation in Israel and Palestine, digging through your destroyed house, and perhaps your family's gone, and what you find is a picture of them that's tattered and torn and covered in dirt and stained, and yet how much would you treasure that tattered and torn picture of your family. In a bit, that's what humans are like. We bear God's image, and yet because of sin, we are tattered and torn and stained. And yet we are of infinite value to God because of whose image we bear. And so that image needs restored. There's a stern warning here that your idolatry can affect others. But the emphasis is not on the warning that these effects could go to the third and fourth generation. The emphasis is on the contrast. The Lord shows steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. It seems too good to be true, doesn't it? That God could keep steadfast love to a thousand generations. And yet, as I've been reflecting this week, I've realized we're only about 120 generations from Father Abraham. Do you realize that? 4,000 years ago, Abraham and Sarah loved the Lord and kept his command when he called them and he said, leave your land, leave your people, leave your idols, and come follow me. And they obeyed, and in response, God is still showing his steadfast love to their descendants. It's remarkable. Israel's at Sinai in Exodus 20, in part because God says, I'm going to be faithful to the promises I made to Abraham. And that's why I'm rescuing you from Egypt. And from Sinai, the story continues of God's steadfast love to Abraham's descendants. Through the stories of uh, Hannah and Samuel and David and the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And the exile, Daniel and Ezekiel and Babylon. And then when they returned to the land. And then through the period where they don't hear a word from the Lord for 400 years. 
And then the steadfast love of the Lord comes into focus when God once again gives us his image. We heard in the assurance of pardon from Colossians 1 that Christ Jesus is the image of God. We're made after God's image and likeness. We're made in the image, but Christ is the image. Paul goes on to say, In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell through him. God is reconciling all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. What's that saying? It's saying through Christ, he's restoring his image in you. He's putting things right the way they should be. Christ is God's image, and through him we are reconciled. Or another way to say that is through Christ, God makes a way for you and I, Gentiles, the nations, to be incorporated into Abraham's descendants. So through Christ, we have the blessing of steadfast love from Abraham's faithfulness. It's still being shown. And if my reckoning's right, we have another, uh, let me do this real quick in my head, 21,000 years of faithfulness for Abraham's, of God's steadfast love for Abraham's faithful obedience. Uh, that's used in 25-year generation. If it's 40-year generation, you know, the year 40,000, we're still reaping the benefits of God's steadfast love. Uh, through Christ, we're part of that thousand generations. Maybe you remember that conversation in the two towers between Sam and Frodo. And Sam says, why to think of it, we're in the same tale still. It's going on. Don't the great tales never end? No, they never end as tales, said Frodo. But the people in them come and go when their parts ended. Our part will end later or sooner. We're in the great tale still. Isn't it amazing? We are part of the blessing of God's steadfast love for Abraham and Sarah's faithfulness. And then it only gets ramped up through Christ's faithfulness. But Paul's other point is equally important. God has given us his image, Christ, the image of God. Idolatry kind of gets things right. We need to worship God through an image. It's a, it's a twisting of a right instinct. But the image we worship God through is not some carved image. It is Christ Jesus. An idolatrous image diminishes God, but in Christ the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through the incarnation, we have a concrete image that we can see and touch of what God is really like. And that means if your picture of God doesn't look like Jesus, it's an idol. If your picture of God doesn't look like Jesus as we see him in the Gospels, in all of his love and grace, but also sternness and justice, in his wildness and unpredictability, if your picture of God doesn't look like Jesus in the Gospels, it is an idol. And it's through that image alone, through Christ, that we offer right worship to God. And then God gives us some further pictures. Oh, uh, yeah, gives us some further pictures. And so in connection with this commandment, uh, Heidelberg and Westminster Catechism point us to the sacraments. We're given these concrete images at the Lord's table, at the water of baptism, of what God has done, and we must use them because we're worshiping according to God's own instructions, not our images. I do have a third point, but I promise this is actually the conclusion. It's not as long as the others, so don't worry if you're a uh, watch, wa watch watcher. Is that a thing? Uh, we're coming to an end. Here's the third point I want to make in conclusion. We love God by honoring his image. We love God by honoring his image. In the ancient world, you can read about these ceremonies. Isaiah talks about them. People would honor their gods by 
taking the carved image out and bathing it, getting it all spiffed up, repainting it, clothing it. They would visit these images and they would provide them with food. Uh, if you've been in any Southeast Asian countries and in homes and restaurants, sometimes you'll see a little, uh, little altar to the ancestors in the corner with a bit of rice or something in it. Uh, that's the same idea. Remember, it's an idol's like FaceTime. This is how you talk to the God, you connect with your God. But God tells Israel, don't make graven images of me. Don't worship me in that way. Don't make carved images. And so how then do we show our love for God? By honoring his image. By honoring his image. We don't make images of God, at least by carving. God has given us his image. He has put his image in the midst of creation. And so we love God by honoring his image. Remember in Matthew 25, uh, Jesus describes what the last day will be like. The Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. He will sit on his glorious throne. Before him all the nations will be gathered and he will separate one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. It's the same logic of idolatry. It's saying honor God's image to show love for God. Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, feeding them, clothing them, visiting them, caring for them, you do it for me. And so in a sense, the logic of idolatry, even though it's all twisted out of shape, we need to worship God through an image Christ Jesus came as that image to take our worship to God. And then we show our love for God by honoring those who bear his image. That's what Jesus was saying with that Caesar, pay taxes to Caesar. That's what he's saying. He's saying God calls all those who bear his image his own. We worship God through his image, Christ Jesus, who is his steadfast love enfleshed. It's how we have access to God. And then we honor God by caring for his image. As Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. So worship and ethics, they're tied together. How we worship God and how we treat those around us. They're interlinked inextricably. Our constructed images, our pictures diminish God and lead us to mistreat others. But God has given us his image and through Christ Jesus' work, he's remaking that image in us. And if our picture of God doesn't look like Jesus, who is the image of God, it's an idol that needs to be shattered again and again as we encounter the living God through Christ. And then we love God by honoring his image, by honoring those made in his image. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, as we sang earlier in the service, our hearts are prone to wander. Our minds are like idol factories. We churn out pictures of you that only are partially correct. Let us always continually have those images shattered by an encounter with the real and living God. 
Help us to know you, to focus on you, our real relationship with you, rather than mere pictures of you. Thank you that you sent Christ Jesus, your very image, in whom your fullness dwelt. Through him, reconcile each of us to yourself. Restore your image in us. Teach us to love Christ as you love Christ. Teach us to be holy as you are holy. And Lord, give us a heart to honor those who bear your image, to love those who bear your image for your sake. Amen.